you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you have a pew Bible, it starts on page 287. Well, some years ago, Cynthia Heimel, while preparing to write for the Village Voice, thought back to the people that she knew in New York City before they were famous. One of them worked the makeup counter at a Macy's. The other one sold tickets at a movie theater. But then something happened for them. Fame, success, stardom. Seeing what they were like before and what they were like after, Heimel writes, I pity celebrities. No, I do. The night each of them became famous, they wanted to shriek with relief. Finally, now they were adored. Invincible, now they were magic. And yet Heimel writes, the minute a person becomes a celebrity is the same minute they become a monster. She goes on to name a number of people that she knew before they were famous and says, they were once perfectly pleasant human beings that you might have lunch with on a Tuesday. But now that they have become supreme beings, their wrath is awful. Facing the disillusionment that their brand of success often brings, Heimel writes, if they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now. But the reality is fame isn't the only form of success that can bring unwanted baggage. A 2012 Boston Globe article reported how a mounting body of research is showing that financial success, that wealth, can actually change how we think and how we behave, and, and not always for the better. It cites research showing that people with wealth on average have a harder time connecting with others. They tend to show less empathy, even to the extent of sometimes dehumanizing those that are different from them. Despite a greater financial ability, they tend on average to be less charitable and generous. They are less likely to help somebody in trouble and more likely to defend an unfair status quo. One study found that a research technique that can stimulate the feeling of wealth actually tends to make people less friendly, less sensitive to others, and more likely to support statements like, some groups of people are simply inferior to others. Meanwhile, another study showed that people with a higher socioeconomic status were, quote, more likely to feel that they had earned their place in society and that poorer people simply had not. Knowing what the reader is likely thinking is reading, while reading this, they include this statement, if you think that you would behave differently in their place, statistically, you're probably wrong says these aren't just inherited traits but developed ones. Money, in other words, they conclude, can change who you are. I know that when we think of trials in life, when we think of those things that test us or reveal things about us, those things that might actually change us one way or the other, we often think of failure, we think of loss, we think of suffering. And those are tests and trials as well, but success can also end up working the same way. See, when things do go right, when they do go according to plans, when they end up maybe better than we hoped, those experiences also do something to the human heart, and they sometimes reveal things about the human heart that maybe we didn't want to see there. You see, when things go well, we all want things to go well. Let's be honest. We all want to meet our goals. We all want our plans to succeed. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But when those things do come, whether it's that big break or maybe that big promotion, finally finishing that degree you've been working on or getting that job, being established in your career, maybe having a business that just takes off, whether it's reaching your long-term goals or just simply having a 
semi-comfortable middle-class life. In the midst of that, what keeps a person grounded and keeps success from potentially changing us from the worst? Well, this morning we're going to look at a sermon of Moses that deals with that very question. When he prepares, as he preaches to those preparing to enter the promised land, it's here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. The sermon that we just read, in it Moses has a point to make. He has a problem to address and a solution to offer. So I want us to look at those three things this morning. First, the point. You see, Moses has got a point to make, and to help people see that, he gives them a brief history lesson. In verse 3, he talks about manna. And now, the Israelites, when they escaped Egypt, they found themselves in this vast desert wilderness where, surprise, surprise, nobody had built a schnooks yet. I mean, kosher or otherwise. And so they were hungry, and as a result, it wasn't just their stomachs that were grumbling in the desert. They knew the desperation of their circumstances. They knew they couldn't make it out unless someone did something for them they could not do for themselves. And so, God provided for all of them food called manna. Something so surprising. Manna literally means, what is it? 
Every day, this manna appeared for them to eat, always enough for the day, and then a double portion on Friday so they could take Saturday off from gathering it. See, when there was no food, and they were feeling their need of it, God provided. Verse 15, Moses mentions how God also provided not only food, but water in the desert. And from the last place you would expect it, from a rock? You see, for 40 years without fail, God would provide nourishment for his people in an otherwise uninhabitable land in a way that only he could get credit for. And it wasn't just their need for water and food that God was meeting. You see, in verse 4, it says that for 40 years, their clothing didn't wear out. I mean, I don't know how many pairs of worn-out jeans I've had, and I haven't even been alive for 40 years yet. And despite wearing these decades-old materials on their, their bodies and on their feet, it goes on to say that their feet did not swell, that their health actually held up. You see, in a place where conditions were nothing short of hostile to human life, the point was that your very life is a gift. And yet the blessings of God were not going to end there. In verse 7, Moses starts off by talking about the land that God was going to bring them into, just like he already brought them out of Egypt. You see, there would be abundant food and water and the the foundations of an agriculture-based economy. In verse 9, he describes it as a place where they would lack nothing. Plenty of food to go around, not to mention abundant minerals, iron and copper in them are hills. All these resources at their disposal, water and crops and and minerals and and more, the very building blocks that make a nation wealthy. So in verse 18, Moses has plenty of reason to declare that it is the Lord that gives you the ability to produce your wealth. Why do they have the ability to produce this in the first place? Well, in verse 10, Moses tells them that their presence in the land was itself a gift. A gift, Moses says in verse 2, was based on God's promise to their forefathers. They would be blessed just as God promised so they could fulfill their God-given purpose of being a blessing to the nations, of being a blessing to others. See, from every different angle that you can look at it, Moses is telling God's people, all your blessings come from your God, your life, your resources, your ability to do something with those resources, and therefore the wealth that comes from those resources and those abilities. You didn't get here on your own. And so when you find success, don't think that that's somehow all on you. Rather, as he says in verse 10, praise the Lord your God for what he has given you. Give thanks. Let the success that comes from God return to God in the form of praise. You see, that's what Moses' point is. But it's not just a message that the ancient Israelites needed to hear. You see, in their times, in their parts of the world, success was already assumed to be the result of the power of their God. If a nation had had military success, the way that they would describe it to their future opponents is, look what our God did for us, not look what we did in battle. Success was assumed to be ultimately a product of their God's doing. And if people with that set of cultural beliefs, with the connection in their minds of God's gifts and acts and their success being the most obvious connection of anybody— If they needed to hear this message, then so do we. Because we also live in a culture with our own cultural values and assumptions and beliefs. You see, every culture tends to reveal what they value most in their hidden beliefs by the stories that they like to tell. We live in the land where people often speak of the American dream, this idea that hard work will lead to your success, where the folk hero is always some form of the self-made man or the self-made woman. 
see those who started with nothing and somehow built an empire. Those are the stories that we tell. Those who started with with less and did more with it to rise from obscurity, to stardom. Those who started from the bottom, now they're here. And yet as we hear and tell these types of stories over and over again, it creates an unspoken assumption and a belief about success and why some people have the success that they do. Often, unspoken cultural beliefs only rise to the surface through our satire. I remember years ago, uh, I was watching an episode of The Simpsons when the eternally 10-year-old Bart was unwisely asked to say grace at a Thanksgiving dinner, including his dad's boss at the table. So he prays, he folds his little four-fingered hands, he bows his little spiky head, he closes his little eyes and prays, Dear God, we paid for all this ourselves, so thanks for nothing. And before he can even say an irreverent amen, gasps come from everybody at the table. And yet in that one short prayer, you hear the words that are actually often hidden in our own hearts that don't come out simply because our adult sensibilities won't let them. Hearts that actually lack gratitude precisely because their needs are being met. In a way, it summarizes the danger of success that they faced then and that we face now. See, what Moses writes in in verse 10 is that the sufficiency that should lead to their praise would for many soon become the surplus that led to pride, just like Moses describes in the verses that follows. You see, why doesn't success necessarily lead us to actually be thankful people? What's wrong? Why do the things that should lead to praise lead to pride? What's the problem? Well, Moses answers the question in verse 11 when he says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. He repeats himself in verse 14, making that connection between their pride and forgetting the Lord, the one who brought them out of Egypt, the one who brought them out of their state of slavery. And yet he doesn't say that it's the actions of God that they'd forget or the commands of God that they'd forget, though Usually those things would follow, but God himself that they would forget. What does that mean? Well, it's not forgetting in the sense that we often use it. It's not like when you call somebody the wrong name. It's not like when you can't match a face and a name together. Uh, We actually read about this. uh, I heard about this in uh, Christopher Wright's book, The Old Testament Ethics and the People of God, where he notes that forgetting in this sense, in the context of a relationship, is not about so much a mental thing as it is a moral thing. What you might describe or what he describes as a mark of offensive or tactless ingratitude. In other words, it's not about like cognitive amnesia, forgetting a name in her face, but what he describes as the loss of any personal significance in the relationship. Forgetting in the sense is the type of thing that I watched time and time again in all the teen movies that I saw on TV when I was growing up. Uh, One of them was called Can't Buy Me Love. And uh, it was once reviewed as having every single teen movie cliche that you can imagine all in one movie. I mean, there was like the the pretty popular head cheerleader who was dating the college boy, the popular jocks, the socially awkward but really, really smart kids. In fact, it even had the slow clap at the end of the movie when someone says something profound. Everything. And so predictably, when one of the social outsiders suddenly ascends the mountain of popularity, finally arrives, finally finds success outside of the classroom, 
and in the halls of his high school as he sports his new clothes, as he proudly pops his collar, as he sports his new hairdo and starts pointing at everybody like he actually knows them. Surprise, surprise, spoiler alert here if you haven't seen it, he suddenly forgets all of his relationships from before. He doesn't forget who they are, but in the face of social success that he's now experiencing, the in-crowd parties and all the perks that come with all of that, it's the significance of those relationships that is lost. Hey, what you doing Friday night? I'm busy Friday night. It goes, well, hey, maybe we can get together Saturday. I was like, I was thinking maybe more Sunday afternoon, like when otherwise he would be napping. See, despite the fact that they were there for him all those years when nobody else was, despite their history and the kindness that they had shown to him, as he moved forward with his newfound life, they simply faded in his rearview mirror. That's what Moses is talking about here. It's, it's one thing when you're clinging to God because he's all you got. He's your only friend. What happens when you're not feeling so desperate anymore? A while ago, I was talking with a, a pastor from the East Coast about a guy who used to go to his church. Uh, years ago, that guy was going through a really rough season where everything was falling apart. I mean, family, relationships, health, uh, career, all of it. As a result of the depression that he was feeling, he'd actually lost a lot of weight so that when new people meet him, they would wonder why the Facebook profile picture with chubby cheeks and a grin, if that was really the same frail person that they knew in real life. In the middle of it, he decided to take a risk, and so he opened up to a local pastor. In a state of depression, he actually went deep with his brand new church. He got into community with others who began to show him a way to relate to God that he'd never even experienced before, the way of grace. And his heart began to change. He began to put behind him old habits that led to his previous sorrow. He would later look back on that season as when he actually became a Christian. Soon things started looking up. Relationships started coming back together. The job situation improved. His health returned, and he began to look like his old self again as the stage of desperation began to fade. But to maintain this new level of success, the financial security that was leading to his relational security came with a lot more responsibilities than before. His pastor and his church started to see a lot less of him and then stopped seeing him altogether. He could still be with them if he wanted to, but began to choose not to. It wasn't that he became really rich or really famous. In fact, it wasn't anywhere near that level of success that he experienced, just a, a little bit of it. But still, his life simply became more comfortable, and the desperation faded away. He began to see his zeal for God fading, his zeal for the church fading. Others saw it, too, as inertia began to set in. It's been a while since my pastor friend has seen him, and he's not the only one who's growing concerned. In a sense, that's what the Israelites are being warned about, what we're being warned about in this passage. Soon, things won't feel as desperate as before. Soon, their prayers would actually be answered and better than they could ever imagine. The promised land is before them, and success is at hand. So beginning in verse 12, Moses says, "'When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down,' When your herds and your flocks grow large, your silver and your gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, when that time comes, will you forget the Lord? What if you were asking that question to us? How would we know if we're prone to do the same? How would we know if it's already happened in our life? 
Well, if you look at what success is like for them, we get a clue. In verse 12, it says, Success looked like full bellies and homes to live in. Verse 13 says it looked like financial security, which means they weren't just living hand to mouth, but the poss- they have the possibility of having something that might actually grow into more. And those things should actually sound pretty familiar to a lot of people in this room, including myself. See, when Moses describes the circumstances that could lead them to forgetting the Lord, describing the kinds of successful lives that would lead them to be the envy of the nations of their time, he actually is describing what most of us already experience in our time. Not having to worry about where your next meal is going to come from or if there's a roof over your head tonight. Not only having something, but having the opportunity for what you have to actually grow someday. And the success that he described wasn't just what they experienced as an individual, but as a community, as a nation. Which maybe leads to another question of how we've handled our own success not just as individuals, but but collectively as a nation. It's something that Abraham Lincoln spoke about in an address in 1863, maybe because he was spending some time in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In his address, he says about his own country, our country, intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power as no other nation has grown. But we have forgotten God. It's a statement from a long time ago about our nation as a a whole, but what about us today? What about us individually? How can we tell if we've personally forgotten God? In verse 17, Moses gives a test. Among other things, he says it might sound like us saying to ourselves, maybe not out loud, but saying to ourselves. You know, it's my power and the strength of my hands that have produced this wealth for me. In other words, seeing ourselves as the source of our blessings, the source of our success. You see, apart from an abiding sense of God giving us the very ability and the very access to resources that we possess and that we use, we'll actually see ourselves as the source of our own success which can lead to seeing the difference between our level of success and another person's as something that we've done that they just haven't. Or, from the other side, seeing another person's success might make us feel inadequate, ashamed in comparison, maybe suspicious of evil things they may have done to give them that success, or maybe resentful because of their level of success. Either way, the blessings of God can actually end up bringing out the worst in a person, See, when you look at what you have, when you look at what you've done, the success you've experienced in life, whether financial or professional, social, relational, romantic, athletic, whatever, when you think of the blessings in your life, what emotions tend to come to the surface? Is it gratitude? Is it thanksgiving? Is it a fear of losing it all? Is it fear of losing your identity with it? Is it pride in having what others don't have? Does thinking of it make it harder to think or to speak graciously? those who maybe don't have the same experience of success that you do. In verse 10, Moses tells them there is a right response. Praise for the God who has given you what you have received. The right response is to praise God for the very things that give you the ability to experience the blessings that you have and the success that you've experienced. I know at this point, some of us are probably wanting to push back a little bit, maybe a lot, 
Because yes, we can all acknowledge that we can't take credit for the things that we did have or didn't have to begin with. But maybe you've worked hard. Maybe you've worked harder than other people have with the things that you did have to begin with. Maybe you've put an effort that other people haven't. Maybe you've worked not only harder, but also smarter than others. And you've taken the raw resources that everybody has, your own abilities and opportunities, and you've squeezed out of them more than anybody else ever could. And if so, I'm I'm happy for you that you've done that. But as Christopher Wright put it in that same book we mentioned earlier, the resources that we share and exchange and trade, the abilities that we have, everything that we have ultimately belongs to God in the first place. And as a result, so does the increase that comes from them, even when produced by our own human effort. God's provision. The opportunity to increase doesn't just look like free real estate in the Mediterranean Sea thousands of years ago. You see, many of us in this room were given advantages, things that we were born with that we don't even think of, maybe because we're surrounded by others who have the same. Being born in a certain place, in a certain time, in a certain century, into a certain family. Being born a certain gender, with a certain skin color, with certain temperaments, certain blessings and certain opportunities that we experience the blessing of each day due to no merit of our own or no fault of our own. See, we've all been given so much that we often don't even think about, individually and collectively, but in the midst of that, we can miss what's actually most important in our life. The lesson that Moses gives us in verse 3. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, the land they were about to enter is going to have a whole lot of bread. But what you need to live life the way it was meant to live is not just bread. Not just what comes into your mouth, but what comes out of the Lord's mouth. Not just having something, but having someone. And if we don't learn this, or if we lose sight of this, if we actually forget the Lord, we can actually end up worse off with our success than without it. And if that's the problem, then what's the solution? Well, since the stories that we tell have a way of shaping our, our thinking and our beliefs, Moses reminds them of their story. He reminds them of the story of the wilderness. In verse 5, Moses describes it as a time of, of discipline, of training them, of preparing them, of teaching them what they need to know to live life the way it's meant to be lived. Three times in this passage, Moses talks about God's goal during the wilderness experience was teaching them humility, of, of humbling them. It's because humility gives people a clearer picture of reality. The reality that their complete and utter dependence is on God and not on themselves. You see, while the proud heart only sees itself and wants more success, the humble heart sees God's hand in our success and is actually thankful for what he has given. The lesson of the wilderness was simply, man shall not live on bread alone. And the bread is in abundance. Don't forget that life is about more than just bread. You see, for them, the wilderness was as much about teaching them as it was about preparing them for what lies ahead. Because that's how wilderness experiences work. That's how the hard times work. How they prepare us for other things. Sometimes for future hardship and struggles and failures. Sometimes preparing us to handle future success in a more appropriate way. Years ago, I met a a pastor who actually pastors in a place where there's a whole lot of really successful people. And he mentioned after his years of interactions with the people in his church that, that those that he met with charmed lives tended to be shallow. They don't necessarily know what's in their own hearts, and they don't have that much grit 
to get by when things don't go well. He says, what trains people in the wilderness is the wilderness itself, the times when not all is easy, not all is simple, not all is well. I can look back at my own life, a time in, uh, in my, my 20s, early 20s, when pretty much everything that I was delighting in began to disappear. Every form of success that I seemed to have experienced all began to fail me one by one and replaced by the sense of desperation. You see, in the midst of it all, I became keenly aware of my need for God's intervention in my life in a way that I'd never experienced before. Keenly aware of my need for his word, his presence, and his promises. I had a spiritual hunger unlike any other time in my life. A hunger that actually led to action. Because I was so hungry, because I was so desperate, I began seeking the means of God's grace in a ways that I'd never done before just because I needed to get by. Just because I needed to get out of bed, make it through class without crying. As a result, my perspective on things actually began to change. I began to see myself differently. I began to see God differently. I began to see others differently. I began to see the way I was wronged differently and those who had wronged me differently. You see, it's about a year and a half later that things started getting better. I started, even though I started seeing how much change had taken place in my life, as I began to see the desperation fading, I found myself praying a prayer I've had to repeat many times since. God, give me a hunger, even in times of plenty. In other words, a longing for God that doesn't forget God in the midst of the blessings of God. It was a prayer to remember the very thing that God calls his people to through Moses. In verse 2, he tells God's people, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert those 40 years. Remember what God has done, how he has provided, how he's answered your prayers, how he brought you to where you are today, and how he allowed the success that you're experiencing in all its different forms. Then in verse 18, he simply says, remember the Lord, the Lord himself, who he is, his character, his attributes, your relationship with him, the one who confirms his covenant with you. See, Moses reminds them of God's covenant and his promises, since it's because of God's promise, not their own merit, that they have what they have in the first place. And to help us remember, God has actually given us something greater than he gave the Israelites in their day. If you look in verse 15, Moses talks about the wilderness as a thirsty and a waterless land. So how did they not die of dehydration those 40 years? Well, it says that God brought you water out of the hard rock. He's referring to an event back in Exodus 17 where God says to Moses, as he stood before the people crying out for water, crying out in desperation, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of everybody there and the water came out. But why give people water this way? Centuries later, the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 10 that the, wa- the rock that they drank from, the rock that was struck, gives them a picture of the work of Jesus. You see, in the desert wilderness, water was life, and without it, nothing else really seems to matter. And getting water from the rock would have shown God's people that the ultimate source of what they needed the most was actually Him. In the midst of their grumbling, when they had already forgotten what God had delivered them from in Egypt, when their hearts were far from thankful for God, their hearts were full of anything but praise, when God could have struck them. God did not strike them down. Instead, on that day at Horeb, 
the rock was struck so that God's people could have life. In the same way the cross is the place where Jesus was struck so that his people could have life. You see, on the cross, Jesus was struck down in place of those who actually deserved God's judgment instead, but instead looked to his offer of living water and receive that offer by faith. In John 4, Jesus makes this promise. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. You see, God not only provided for his people's greatest physical and felt need in a desert wilderness, provides for our greatest spiritual need and our own wilderness experiences today. And he didn't just do it at the cross, but Jesus did it in his own wilderness experience. Matthew 4, we read that before Jesus began his public ministry, he too spent time in the wilderness. In fact, 40 days and nights he fasted. One day for every year that the Israelites spent in that same wilderness, he too experienced hunger. And like his fellow Jews before him, he faced temptation. The temptation of whether or not to trust God, whether or not to obey God, whether or not to look to God. The very temptations that we all still face today. Three specific times he was tempted by the devil. He was tempted with the perks of success apart from obedience, relief from longing and desperation apart from God's provision, and fame apart from sacrificial love. And each time, quoting scripture to combat each temptation, Jesus proved what it really means that we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, where God's people failed, Jesus did not fail. Friends, the message of the gospel is that Jesus succeeded where we failed and offered to us his perfect record in exchange for our imperfect record to give us the resources to deal with success today. And when we learn that, when we remember that, it actually has the effect of humbling us. It gets our eyes off of what we have done and what we've accomplished and onto what Jesus has done and what he has actually accomplished in our place. It helps us to see that the blessings and success we experience in life are rooted in God's goodness, not in our goodness. It helps us to be gracious, thankful people who turn success into praise rather than pride who see our blessings as the means that God wants to use not only to bless us, but to bless others through us. Friday night, I, uh, I finally got around to seeing the movie Coco. If you've seen the trailers, you know that it's based around the Mexican holiday, the Day of the Dead, and it's about music and family, but it's also about the effect that success can have on people how they handle it. It's a movie about those who are remembered and those who are forgotten. For those who haven't seen it, I'll avoid using any real characters' names to avoid giving away too much of the story. But in the movie, there is one character who is said to have experienced success beyond their wildest imagination, and as a result, seems to have forgotten those who were once dearest to him. Meanwhile, there's another character who has sadly been forgetting the person who used to be so central to their life, somebody worthy of that central role in their life. And yet with time and circumstances, they've caused this person who we'll call Jose, have caused Jose to slowly fade from their memory. And the good effect that Jose once had on their life also is beginning to fade. By the end of the movie, we see that Jose, 
who by the end of the movie has had their own wilderness experience, one day had to face a decision. Certain success and fame was at hand, but the way that they were being offered to receive it would mean forgetting that very same person who was now forgetting him. Jose's decision to not forget, to not let the significance of that relationship pass by, Jose's decision to not forget would cost him more than success. It would cost him his life. And yet despite that cost, though many would forget Jose, Jose did not forget them. Friends, we may forget God along the way. We may falter in our faith and the journey of faith, but one thing is certain. Because of Jesus' faithfulness in the wilderness, because of his sacrifice on the cross, it shows us the beauty of the truth of the gospel that though we may be prone to forget God, friends, God did not forget you. Let me pray for us. Father, I confess that there are many ways that you have brought success into my own life, maybe brought it into the life of others here, that I too find myself forgetting you, that I find the significance of that relationship being far from what it should be. Father, the grace of your gospel is that you did not forget us, we who are so forgetful, who lose sight of your face in the midst of your hand and your blessings. Father, may this table serve as a reminder to us, to our head and to our hearts, as we come to this table, your table. We pray this in your name. Amen.